that a good attitude to that is to is to see it as a it's a kind of gift that we're offering the community offering our fellow travelers spiritual travelers that the gift of silence gift of quiet as a way of supporting the practice supporting our own practice and this Attitude, this way of looking at things as, as a, a gift, a sense of gratitude. We can apply that to our whole life. Whole whole life, really. We can see that, uh, reflect on all that we've been given throughout our lives by our parents, for instance, our, our teachers, our friends, family. How much we've been given, how much support we've had. And the blessings we've had from from our, the wider society, all the support that we've had, all the good things in, in our lives, we can uh, see them as gifts. And develop this attitude of uh, appreciation and, uh, and gratitude, and then here here in the monastery, pretty much everything's a gift. The buildings that we live in are a gift. The heating, the, the food that we're offered, it's a gift. The medicines clothing that we wear, everything is, is a gift. It's what they call four four requisites. And amazingly, uh, the dispensation of, of the Buddha has survived across different continents for two and a half thousand years on this principle of, of gifts. If you travel to Thailand and other Southeast Asian countries, and there's Burma and also Sri Lanka and you see this in operation, monasteries supported by gifts and the monks going on arms round every morning. It's been going on for hundreds of years, or thousands of years, going back to ancient India. And right from the beginning, the, the, the Buddha's teachings have survived on this principle, that's what's why we have them. Even two and a half thousand years later, we still have access to these teachings because of the generosity of, of all the support that's been given to to the practitioners over the centuries. To start with, the monks were living in living rough, really. They're sleeping rough. They're living in caves and sleeping under trees. And the uh, millionaire businessman Anatta Pindaka offered the first uh, 
monastery where the Buddha allowed the monks to start living in uh, buildings and kutis and shelter. Another millionaire was called uh, Kalaka. Kalaka offered a, a monastery called Kalakarama, which uh, Rama means monastery. In this monastery, the uh, one time the monks were talking about the gifts and, and powers of of the Buddha, like praising his all his powers, and particularly his psychic powers. And the, the Buddha arrived on the scene, and, and as happened quite frequently frequently in this in these situations when these the monks were talking about the the Buddha's powers and particularly psychic powers, he deflected the conversation into a more kind of useful direction and deflected it into talking about the, the Dhamma, reflecting on the Dhamma. And on this particular occasion in the Kalakarama monastery, when the Buddha arrived, and this, apparently this happened shortly after this monastery had been offered, it was quite soon after Kalaka established this monastery for the monks to live in. And the Buddha kind of summarized his attitude by saying that uh, the Tathagata does not conceive of a seen thing as apart from seeing. He, de he does not conceive of a seer, or one who sees. The Tathagata does not conceive of a heard thing as apart from hearing. He does not conceive of a hearer or one who hears. The Tathagata does not conceive of a sensed thing, as apart from sensing. Does not conceive of a, a sensor, one who senses. The Tathagata does not conceive of a cognized thing, as apart from cognizing. He doesn't conceive of a, a cognizer or one who cognizes. So that's a summary, it's quite a terse statement of the Tathagata's attitude and uh, I, I yeah, presume most of you know that the Tathagata, the, the Buddha referred to himself in the third person often as the Tathagata, which means the Tata, suchness, and Kata, gone to, so gone to suchness, and he'd refer to himself in that way. Starting at the beginning, looking at that first Phrase. I mean, the Buddha. The Buddha's basically um, sort of pointing to the the mystery of the world that we live in, and the mystery of who we are, and offering us a kind of key to unlock this mystery. And the uh, first statement: the targeter does not conceive of a seen thing as apart from seeing. So, um, normally, in in the world of uh, of our senses. We normally have a presumption, don't we, that we, we that we perceive the world, that we actually experience the world out there. And in this teaching, the, the Buddha is pointing to the fact that actually the the world is is something that the, our mind makes. Our mind makes a kind of representation of the world, and we don't really directly know the world out there. For instance, this the uh, this green carpet. Here is, it's, if we look at it, it's a, it's a visual sense impression that's uh, hanging in, in the space of awareness. We don't directly know the carpet, we don't directly know the essence of the carpet. For me, I've got a bit 
bit of a, maybe more of a personal history than some of you with the carpet. I can remember who made it, Theo Dykeman, years, 30 years ago, and remember that whole process. And sometimes I hoover it, and sometimes I move it around. So it's got a certain amount of meaning to me. And, and that's um, often when we have, a, we have a bit of a history with something, then those associations and memories, that's, that's what creates a sense of kind of a solidity or reality around something, whereas actually it's it's uh, just a sense impression hanging in the mind. And when we look at something like a carpet, it's like um, like a photo. If you look at the image of a, of a photo, we know it's just an image and you, you turn it sideways, it almost disappears. Or, or the, uh, the old reel-to-reel -reel celluloid films, then you slow them down, you, you see their individual pictures and you turn it sideways on it almost disappears. Or these days, like a, a computer screen the image on a, on a computer screen, where we know that's just an image on the screen. And if we, uh, say we go inside an old-fashioned cinema to watch a film, we suspend, there's a willing suspension of disbelief in order to enjoy, enjoy the film. You, uh, you suspend our disbelief and we we kind of sympathise with the hero, so when things are going well for the hero, we feel happy, and when things are going badly, we, we feel like we don't feel so good. And, but we know at the back of our mind that we've willingly suspended disbelief, and that when the film finishes, we'll, we'll just go back outside. And, whereas in this kind of film that we're in, we're in a kind of film that's been created by the... Is it a kilo, it's only a kilogram or so of porridge inside our skull, the brain, and this is kind of bright shiny film that that's, in, that's producing and we, we don't remember coming into this cinema you know, we, we don't remember being born we've just kind of found ourselves here in this mystery and we're, we're trying to figure it out and the uh, Buddha had, had he had quite a nice image for, for this and uh, he didn't of course there wasn't all this technology around so he didn't have Im images that we have of, of of film screens and computer screens and uh, photographs and so on, but he pointed to um, a mirage. He said, "If uh, a mirage is, it's like an image hanging in the air, and that if somebody was to look at a mirage and ponder it and contemplate it, then that, that person would see that the mirage on the horizon is is just insubstantial, hollow, and empty." And in the same way, if, if, if we look at the, say, the, the image of this carpet or, or any perception of any visual thing or anything that we hear, if we look at that perception, we'll see that it's an it's a image that's sense impression that's just hanging in the space of awareness, like, like a mirage. Then the other, the other part of that... Um, Sutta, the Buddha says that the, um, the, the Tathagata does, does not conceive of a seer or one who sees. That's S W E R, one who sees a seer. So this this is a slightly slightly different contemplation, sort of not a bit like a not self contemplation. So for, I mean, for example, we in the not self, a kind of not self contemplation, you can contemplate the things that you see, and they're obviously not self because you're you're, you're, you're looking at them. Buddha um, 
for this type of contemplation, he gave a, an image of, um, he was in a, a park, and the lay people were coming into the park and picking up the, the firewood and taking it away and, and burning it. And he asked his disciples if that, that upset them. And they said, no, no, it doesn't upset us. And he said, well, why doesn't that upset you? He, they said, well, it, it's the, the firewood they're collecting. It's, it's, not, it's not us and it's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. And it's not us. It, it's not us. It's uh, just firewood. And the Buddha said, in the same way, you, you, you should have that similar attitude to, to your own experience. It's not you. you examine your body, mind, experience. It's not you. It's not yours. Looking at external sight, we can see things, objects, they're obviously not self because the things that we're observing. We can, and then looking for the one who sees, we can look at our own body, we can see our own feet. The feet aren't seeing anything. Look at our legs, they're not doing any seeing. We can look further up, torso is not doing the seeing, and then we can keep going up. And what we come to is, is a kind of space within which everything is arising, we start to notice this the space of awareness and the it's like the eyeball can't see itself but we can, as it were turn the arrow of our attention around in 180 degrees, so invert attention and, and look in kind of metaphorically and notice this uh, space of awareness or another way of looking at it, it's like we allow ourselves to fall back into the space of awareness, the source of seeing. And when we do that, we see there's just a space. We don't find somebody in there, a person in there, sitting in there looking out. So there's no little homunculus looking out. There's just a sort of wide open space within which these images, sense impressions arise. We don't find the one who sees to see it. We don't find him in there. It's just a, a clear, wide open space, a kind of a vacancy. And the thing is, if there was somebody, if you did find somebody in there, you wouldn't be able to see out. There has to be a vacancy in order to be able to see out. There has to be a, a zero for, the, for there to be a one. Or there has to be a context for, the, for there to be any content. So, the, so this is it's natural that there's this space, that there's this no person in there, just this wide open sky of awareness. That's how it works, that's how consciousness works. So, m moving on to hearing, the, ne the next part is the Tathagata does not conceive of a heard thing as apart from hearing. So normally when, uh, say, we hear a bird, we have this perception, sense that we know the bird, we can hear it. And, uh, whereas if in, in meditation we kind of slow down the process of, uh, of hearing, we'll notice actually what, what we really know is just the hearing, just the, the sense impression arising in the mind. That's all, that, that's all that we know. We don't directly know the bird. We know this sense impression arising, ceasing in consciousness. Or uh, meditating in this room. I mean, those of you who've meditated in, in here will have noticed that there's some funny noises. That the, the floorboards creak, don't they? They kind of 
I think when people first come in here, if they're not used to it, it sounds like somebody's walking around. But actually, it's, it's the underfloor heating system, so that, that the, the the planks expand and contract and make this this noise. So that's just a, a sound impression arising in your mind, isn't it? It's, it's just this. this we don't, you don't directly know the floor. You don't directly know the creak. It's a, what you know is a, a sound impression arising in the mind. Whereas for myself, I, I've got a bit more of a longer-term relationship with the floor. It was me and Agent Kemiseri that put it in 30 years ago. And and 30 years ago, we used to do a lot of the building work ourselves. It was all a bit DIY. And we weren't trained builders, so we had to figure it out. And sometimes we made mistakes. <laughs> and the uh, with this floor, you notice that there's no gap, so everything's very tight. And that's how we decided to do it. We wanted to look a bit like a coffee table, just have the, the oak planks close together. So they look very beautiful. So they're all nailed down. It's me and Ajahn Kemisiri, plus a few helpers. Put pretty much every nail in, and there's underfloor heating underneath of it. And um, it was quite a big project, just before the winter retreat. And we were working all through the day, every day, often up until quite late at night, midnight, to try and get it done before the winter retreat. And then the um, first, we managed, after quite, quite a lot of hard work, and the first day of the retreat, we, we all gathered in here to sit together. And that was the first time the, the underfloor heating had been put on. We, we didn't know what was going to happen, so we put the underfloor heating in on for this first sit. And there was these really loud cracks. I mean, now it's very quiet, but, uh, but 30 years ago, it was like a tw 10 or 20 times louder than it is now. Really loud, creaking noises. So it was really upsetting. We were looking forward to this silent window retreat. Two months of silence and spent two months listening to this floor creaking <laughs> very loudly. So for me, there's a kind of investment. So that when I hear that sound, it's not just a sound. There's a whole history of memories and feelings. And, and that, you know, we really wanted it to work and we were really upset when it didn't work. So there's all that that, for me, creates it into a, a, a real thing. This floor's like a, a real thing in my world because of all these associations and feelings about it whereas actually when you hear a sound it's it's just a sense impression arising in the mind that's all it is about a bit like this, this the image the buddha gives of, of, a, of, a, of a mirage that perception just arises and ceases the next part is the Tathagata does not conceive of, of one who hears. And again, in meditation, when the mind goes quiet, we, we can look inside and look at this sense of, of a hearer. We, we can often have this quite strong sense of self as a me in there, hearing things. We can look at that in meditation and see that when, when the mind calms down and quietens down, actually there's just this wide open, silent space. You know, we, we can't find this person in there, this the one who hears, the, the hearer. We can't find him. There's just a silent, open space. And again, this isn't, I'm not telling, telling you to believe this. This is, of course, something for you all to investigate and, and, and look into you know, the Buddha's teachings. It's, it's always an invitation to look for ourselves, not, 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 not to believe that there's no hearer or no self, it's to, to look for ourselves and find out what, what the nature of our own experience is. So the next one is um, 
that the target does, does not conceive of a sensed thing as apart from sensing. And this is um, the word in Pali is muta, which sensed, which um, has three, includes three different senses actually. There's a body sensation, physical sensations, and there's taste and, and smell. So it's a kind of broad word. And the uh, great thing about um, the, the way the, the Buddhist path of investigation is, is set up is that when we, we, we do um, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing to, to calm down, we do a sort of calming meditation. And then when it comes to investigation, what we're doing is we're, we're, we can investigate the very same thing that we're, that we're already meditating on. We don't have to change the object. So, for instance, in the, in the mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body, we're, we're being aware of the, the breath, the wind element, which is the sensation of movement in the body, the, the belly, chest, moving. And then as the mind calms down, it includes the, the whole body, a sense of tingling or energy moving in the whole body. So there's this principle of movement, sensations of movement, and there's also the Fire, fire element, which is heat and cold, so you can feelings of warmth and heat in the body, or feelings of coldness, hardness and softness, those kind of feelings in the body, which is the, the, the earth element, the feeling of hardness against the chair, or softness in the, in the belly, or, and then feelings of um, cohesion, elasticity, the water element is. Uh, when we're breathing in and out, there's a sense of elasticity, cohesion. So the, these are all just ways of, of describing physical sensation that uh, we experience when we're being aware of the body, doing, doing mindfulness of breathing. And the uh, Buddha had an, an image to, to convey this sense of insubstantiality for the, for the body. And the image that he gave was of a um, lump of lump of foam sitting on the river in, in this sort of he's he's uh, he sitting beside the river Ganges and, and uh, pointing to the lumps of foam that will be floating on the, on the river and uh, talking about how somebody pondering and contemplating one of these lumps of foam would see that it was uh, insubstantial, uh, empty and, and hollow. And in the same way, if somebody was to contemplate their experience of the body, the physical sensation of the body, then they'd see also how that's uh, hollow, insubstantial and, uh, and empty. Either sensations arising in consciousness, sense impressions. With our body, sense of touch, we can also experience a chair or the cushion that, 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 that we're sitting on, the floor, these physical things. And the, um, we ordinarily might presume that we somehow directly know the floor, the chair, the cushions that we're sitting on. But when we meditate, we, we start to see that actually that physical sensation of touch is uh, it's just an insubstantial 
sense impression arising in, in our bodies the, uh, when the, the sense of resistance sense of touch when we, when we touch something like the floor cushion, the chair it's actually a, we don't directly know uh, the chair, we don't directly know the essence of the chair or the floor, what we know is a sense impression arising in consciousness and it's as if um, when we contemplate that it's, it's as if the carpet's been pulled out from under, underneath, the floor's been pulled out from underneath so what we experience is just this sense impressions hanging in space so muta um, sensing the, uh, the, the Tathagata does not conceive of a sense thing as apart from sensing so muta, this word muta also includes um, tasting and, and smelling so we can, we can apply this investigation in, uh, at the meal is a good time so to investigate smelling and tasting or when we're having a, a drink of something one of my favorite things is, is uh, has been for decades is um, Walker's salt and vinegar crisps and uh, you can't tell me that you know they don't exist I mean uh, they, uh, they're definitely a thing in my mind Walker's salt and vinegar crisps and, the, and, and why is that why is that for me such a strong real thing it's not, it's not just a sense impression. I mean, they're, they're an event. <laughs> and uh, the reason that for that is, is because of um, I like them. There's, there's desire and attachment, and that's what creates them as, as a real, a real thing in, in my experience. Crisps are actually just bits of potato sitting in a plastic bag. You know, they're not sitting there reifying themselves. Going, I'm a Walker's salt and a crisp. That's, that's my mind that does that, that reifies them, turns them into a thing. Taste and smell, that's a yeah, good one to, to, to work with at the, the mealtime, see how real things become. <laughs> the other part of that was is um, Tathagata does not conceive of a, a, a sensor or a one who senses as apart from sensing so so in, in, in meditation do mindfulness of breathing mindfulness of the body when the mind's calmed down we can really look and really get this sense in the body of, of, of the space of consciousness space of awareness and how that there really isn't a, a person in there it's, it's just a wide open kind of empty but empty in a lovely way wide open space wide open sky and uh, sometimes people use an image of, of the ocean. It's like a normal experience is the waves on the ocean. But when we do mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body, and look into the nature of consciousness, and you start to see it's like a, it's like the depths of the ocean. You get this very different perspective on, on life and our, our experience. The last one is um, a Tathagata does not conceive uh, of a cognized thing as apart from cognizing nice image f for that from a different sutta uh, is um, the time when the Buddha was sitting behind, beside the Ganges and his image for um, mental activity is that he gives is um, 
mental activity, compares it to a, a plantain tree, a banana tree. And the thing about a plantain tree or banana tree is you peel off the leaves, you peel off, you cut into the trunk, and it's just hollow. Whereas most trees have got a heartwood, they've got a hard centre. Whereas a plantain tree in the middle, if you cut into the middle, it's just empty, it's just hollow. And he would have points out that if somebody was to contemplate and ponder a banana tree, then they'd see that it's, it's just empty, hollow, and insubstantial. And in the same way, if somebody was to contemplate the uh, mental activities, the thoughts, feelings, memories, intentions, then they'd see that they also have this same quality of insubstantiality, hollowness, and emptiness. To do that, to, to practice that for ourselves, we can. Um, it's quite difficult to catch thoughts, isn't it? They're quite quick and quite difficult to be mindful of thinking because they're so quick. So, um, what we can do, Lumpur Samadha would always suggest that we consciously think a thought ourselves. So, you, you can think the thought, I am a human being. And then notice the silence at the end. And then you can think the thought more slowly. I am a human being. And notice the gaps between the words, the silences between the words. And notice the silence at the beginning of the thought, and the end of the thought. And the way we normally think about um, thinking is that there's a thinker comes along, a thought comes along, and then they come together and there's an experience, thinking. And that's a sort of working model that, that we might have if we don't, you know, until we actually examine it. And then in meditation, when the mind's quiet, we, we actually examine thinking. We can have this conscious thought ourselves and see that thinking is, is a kind of a process. It's like a little voice, sound inside our heads, thinking that there isn't such a thing as a, a sort of discrete thing called a thought. It's, it's a kind of process that happens, a sort of insubstantial process happening in consciousness, the, the thoughts arise and cease within consciousness as, as uh, like sense impressions, a bit, a bit like sound does, it's like a sense impression arising and, and, and ceasing in consciousness in, in a similar way that a sound would do that. And then the thinker, we can, we can look to see who can find the thinker, the one who cognizes the thinker. And again, in, in, when we're not meditating, when the mind's moving quite fast, it's the speed of experience creates these kind of, this kind of delusion, this sense of a, a me in there doing the thinking. Also, in the unexamined life, everything's moving so fast. When, when meditation, you have the opportunity to to really slow down and uh, have a look at, uh, at what's happening. So we, when the mind's quiet, become more peaceful we can look in there and we can we can think the thought I am a human being and see that that's just arising in a wide open silent space we can't spot this little homunculus this little person in there doing the thinking it arises in this wide open skylight space So that's um, a kind of, a, it's quite a terse sutta, isn't it? But the, the, the Buddha's offering it to us as, as a kind of key for unlocking this um, sense of 
the uh, me struggling inside this world and the, um, when we put it all together put the whole picture together seeing hearing smelling tasting touching thinking put the whole thing together then the um, Buddha has another image for, for, for this when, when all six sense consciousnesses working together he compares that to uh, a magician's trick and uh, a magician's trick is, is it, it works because the magician's sleight of hand is, is so quick and uh, we know if we examine it you know that it's, it's, it's there's no magic there it's just it's just his trick he's got a very kind of sleight of hand fast movement with his hand skilled movement with his hand and once we examine it Buddha pointed out then you see that the magician's trick is it's hollow it's insubstantial it's empty if, if you examine it carefully and the same thing with, with sense consciousness seeing, hearing, smelling tasting, touching if, if you carefully examine it when the mind goes quiet and you've got that ability to, to investigate and you'll see that, that consciousness is a bit like a magician's trick it's uh, it also is insubstantial, hollow and, uh, and empty. In, in, in a retreat, it's an ideal situation to, to do this, the, to, to, to settle down and, and carefully in, investigate the, these the senses, the six senses, and then sitting in meditation, start to see how things are insubstantial and so on. But then in uh, in real life, of course, we'll, we'll bang into things and suddenly things become very real and we're, we're upset by things and there's a strong sense of self and the world and we can ask ourselves, well, where does that come from? It's, uh, suddenly that things aren't in, sorry, insubstantial. There's a substantial sense of me and the world. And what that comes from is, is um, feelings like painful feelings and pleasant feelings or at least our, our relationship to, to, to those feelings so when we're experiencing an unpleasant feeling and each of these senses, the six senses there's, there's always a feeling associated with them six senses, a pleasant feeling an un, unpleasant feeling or neutral feeling and it's our relationship to those feelings that creates a sense of the real world and me as a, as a, as a solid self in this world unpleasant feelings, we resist them, we don't like them, we're attached to our disliking and uh, we practice with that by feeling them, learning to feel unpleasant feelings, learning to feel our reaction and then gradually learning to, to let go of that reaction and then the only way we can do that is by suffering, I'm afraid, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's no shortcut. <laughs> we. Uh, Benjamin often talks about conscious suffering, being willing to suffer. So that that's how we work. Have to work with an unpleasant feeling and learn to let go of it. And then pleasant feeling, if if we're enjoying something, then suddenly the world seems a very solid, real place, and I seem a very solid, real person because of the, our relationship to pleasant feeling. Is that we enjoy, we enjoy it, we search after it, we're attached to it. And we work with that by noticing that it uh, it changes eventually. And when it changes, if we've invested in enjoying the pleasant feeling, 
then we'll suffer in a corresponding way because when it when it changes we're searching again for this thing to happen again and that the, and the suffering of that searching and yearning corresponds to how much we've indulged in the, in the pleasant feeling when it was there but fortunately for us there are, there are three feelings there's also the, there's the feelings that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant the neutral feelings and if we're with those say like, like when we do mindfulness of breathing the, the very ordinary sensations in our body that we for the rest of the time we might ignore or not even notice we bring those to our attention and we do mindfulness of breathing and this very neutral ordinary feelings if we really pay careful attention to them then they become quite lovely this kind of calming lovely sensations in the body if you stay with them for five ten fifteen minutes awareness fills up the whole body starts to enjoy it these feelings starts to calm down and then we can investigate uh, our relationship with different feelings unpleasant feeling pleasant feeling start to investigate the nature of seeing hearing smelling tasting touching this whole kind of vivid cinema that we've sort of found ourselves inside of and we can start to understand it a bit more bit by bit start to actually see for ourselves what's happening we don't have to read a book about it or, or ask a teacher we can see for ourselves the nature of our own experience and how it is that we create problems and suffering and how it is that we can we can let go of that and then bit by bit gradually we can start to discover a bit more peace and, and, and a bit more freedom in our lives to offer those words for your reflection tonight. I hope some of that's been useful. <laughs>